Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Thursday the 31st of July 1902. That was the day Australia was shocked and saddened by the Mount Kembla mining disaster and the day that a man named Henry Osborne McCabe was again called on to risk his life deep underground to save trapped workers. Yet Henry McCabe's legacy is nowhere as clear cut as him simply having twice been the hero. Once, it seems, he was one of the villains. Henry Osborne McCabe was born in November 1856 in Marshall Mount, a suburb of Wollongong, New South Wales. His father was Francis McCabe, an Irishman who'd come to Australia in 1841 and become a legendary pioneer surveyor best known for mapping the Murray-Darling from 1848. By 1853, Francis had been assigned to the Illawarra, and in 1855, he married Jane Osborne, the daughter of a local coal mine proprietor. In 1856, they had their first son, that was Henry, and the next year, Francis's father-in-law installed him as the manager of the Mount Kira Colliery at Bulleye, just outside of Wollongong. Francis McCabe would be active in local politics, serving as an alderman and as the mayor of North Illawarra Council, and he was also a major in the South Coast Colonial Military Forces. To say that Henry followed in his father's footsteps is a bit of an understatement. Henry became a surveyor and went to England in the 1870s to do an apprenticeship in coal mine management and engineering. When he returned to Australia, he worked for a few years as a surveyor before in 1883 taking over as manager of the Mount Kira Colliery, answerable to his father and to his mother's family. In 1885, Henry married Marion Ewing and in June the following year, they had their first child, a son he named Francis after his dad. Like his father, Henry was a civic-minded chap. He was captain of the Battery of Volunteer Artillery Reserve at Bulleye, and later he'd be an alderman and mayor of Wollongong Council. And like his father, Henry was also opposed to miners' demands for increased safety measures and better wages. Through 1886 and into early 1887, Henry, his father and the Osborne family were engaged in a bitter standoff with striking miners. They evicted them from company-owned houses in towns that supported the mines and they employed scabs known as blacklegs to ensure production continued. The miners and their wives and families stood their ground and they even succeeded in surrounding scab trains and scaring many blacklegs back to Sydney. The strike ended in February 1887 with the bosses victorious and the miners returning to work because they'd pretty much been starved into submission. A month later, at 2.30 in the afternoon on the 23rd of March, 1887, a gas explosion ripped through the Mount Kira mine. A 17-year-old named Herbert Cope was driving a horse out of the main tunnel when the blast occurred and he was blown out unconscious. 
Boy Cope, as he'd become known in the newspapers, would prove the only survivor of the 82 men and boys underground at the time. Not that anyone knew that at first. Henry McCabe, who'd fought the men so bitterly, now led efforts to rescue and retrieve them, repeatedly risking his life. While many miners had been killed by the explosion, many more died from rock collapses and fire-damp gas. And both of these dangers remained a threat to Henry and his relief teams as they crawled miles through the dark tunnels. The scenes were heartrending as mothers and wives and children wept as body after body was brought to the surface. The retrieval efforts went for days. As the Lismore Northern Star reported on the 2nd of April, all the working has been searched with the exception of the western end. This is considered the most dangerous. The distance from the pit mouth to this particular place is about one and a quarter miles. Mr McCabe and about 20 men are opening up this spot and a good current of pure air is now passing through. The article continued, erroneously putting the death toll at 84. Quote, the mine inside is a terrible place to look at. In one place a fall has taken place and the rescuers have to crawl on their hands and knees clinging to the earth to bring all that remains of their brother miners to the pit mouth. Here's how the Daily Telegraph on the 26th of March reported the immediate aftermath of what was Australia's worst industrial disaster. Quote, The town of Bulli wears an extreme air of desolation. Mournful countenances meet the eye, each denoting its own sad tale of sorrow. Widows and children weeping tears of grief, coffins containing the bodies of the victims, travelling in a stream from the pit along the road, make a picture which strikes awe into the most hardened heart and makes one realise the omnipotent power of God above who controls the destinies of our chequered careers. The sight is one which may perhaps never happen again. God forbid it should. Was it God's doing or man's? A coronial inquest was held to find out. Henry McCabe testified that the ventilation system had been adequate to deal with the smallish amount of gas occasionally present. He said that his miners had used safety lamps, which enclosed naked flames behind gauze to prevent ignition of any gas present, and he would never have endorsed miners removing that gauze to give themselves more light to work by. Henry also said he wouldn't have allowed miners to light the fuses of the explosive charges they set into the coalfaces using the naked flames from these lamps. But the inquest learned that more gas than he allowed had been present, that key doors hadn't been kept in the right position to allow proper ventilation, that safety lamps had been found unlocked beside dead miners, and there had been no inspector present. The inquest was scathing, returning this verdict, quote, We the jury are of the opinion that William Wade and others came to their death in the Bulleye coal mine on the 23rd of March 1887 by a gas explosion. The jury then added this rider, quote, which was brought about by the disregard of the Bulleye Colliery Special Rules and Coal Mines Act in allowing men to work when gas existed. A subsequent Royal Commission made the same finding. Yet, even before these official inquiries, after interviewing miners, the Sydney Morning Herald on the 26th of March reported, quote, They say that the company has succeeded only too well in its determination to fight to the bitter end and crush the miners. 
that the company has such a system of terrorism that men are afraid even to exercise the rights given them by law. They only went back to work to avoid pauperism, and they point to the rules issued by the company as bringing about a state of things that would lead to utter demoralisation. In this case, they distinctly say that if they had their own check inspector, as the law entitles them to, this disaster would never have happened. But because whoever moved for it would be a marked man, they have not ventured to do so. All of this was incredibly damning, yet Henry, his father and the Osborne family suffered no consequences. The Mount Kira mine reopened the following year and Henry would run it until 1897, the same year that his father died. By July 1902, Henry Osborne McCabe, former mine manager and former Wollongong mayor, had a business office in Sydney and spent considerable time at the family residence now in North Sydney. Towards the end of July, Henry left a note on his office door saying he was going to Wollongong and he'd be back on the 1st of August. He was in the district on the 31st of July 1902 at 2pm when, as the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, the peaceful and picturesque township of Wollongong was thrown into a state of great excitement. A terrific report was heard as if thousands of pounds of dynamite had been exploded, followed by a sharp movement of the earth. The windows of houses rattled and the crockery on the kitchen dresses shook as if it would fall. The people of Wollongong wondered what this was. Blasts from a quarry that was loosing stone for the breakwater had never been heard. Maybe it had been an earthquake. Rushing outside, they looked towards the Illawarra Range where Mount Kembla, Mount Kira and Mount Pleasant coal mines were located, but they saw nothing out of the ordinary. Then the telephone rang at the Wollongong post office. There'd been an explosion at Mount Kembla Colliery. It was feared all the miners were entombed. By coincidence, the arbitration court was sitting in Wollongong right at that moment, trying to solve a dispute between southern collieries and their workers. By incredible coincidence, if a Daily Telegraph report is to be believed, Jacob Jones, who'd succeeded Henry as Mount Kira's mine manager, had just said the Mount Kembla mine was one of the safest in the world when an excited constable came into the court to tell the news that had just been relayed to the post office. The dispute forgotten for the moment, mine managers, union reps and rank-and-file members rushed to Mount Kembla along with hundreds of people from Wollongong and mining townships. When these rescuers arrived, they found that Henry McCabe was already on the scene and directing relief efforts around the main tunnel entrance and a secondary access tunnel. The Sydney Morning Herald described a scene that was eerily reminiscent of the 1887 disaster. Quote, the screams of the women and children were heartrending. They felt certain, seeing the fearful outpouring of smoke and the ominous silence of the telephone, which runs about two miles into the mine, that the explosion had smashed the wires and possibly had caused the roof of the tunnel to collapse, thus making the men prisoners and perhaps killing many of them. A witness told the South Coast Times that afternoon and into the evening, Henry, quote, went in again and again with parties. His great care during the early part of the night was to prevent irresponsible parties, armed with naked lights, from rushing to their doom. Just before midnight, Henry and another man, Mount Kembla's night shift deputy, William McMurray, who hadn't even been on duty when the explosion happened, went once more into the breach, leading a party of rescuers. One of these men told the Sydney Morning Herald what happened next. 
Mr. McCabe and Mr. McMurray had gone two miles right up to the end of the main drive and were coming back when they were overcome by gas. Henry McCabe apparently shouted to the men, It is no use, boys. Get away and save yourselves. Those behind him ran, and Henry and William McMurray tried to follow. They didn't make it out. This same witness was then part of several rescue attempts that were driven back by gas. When they finally made it, they found Henry, quote, was lying with his arms around Mr. McMurray, and it looked as though he had been trying to carry McMurray out when he had fallen, overcome by the gas, never to rise again. In all, 94 miners would die, with Henry McCabe and William McMurray bringing the toll to 96, making it Australia's deadliest industrial accident to this day. Yet 94 men were rescued, making Henry McCabe's sacrifice all the more poignant. His body was taken to the artillery barracks in Wollongong and he was buried a few days later with military honours in a funeral attended by 3,000 mourners. The subsequent inquest and royal commission into the Mount Kembla disaster was like a replay of those 15 years earlier. The disaster had been caused by the company not taking safety seriously and allowing the use of naked flame lamps. And again, no individual or company was held responsible. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.